the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, December 5th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. The White House says funds for Ukraine are running out. A former U.S. ambassador is accused of secretly serving as a Cuban spy. Israeli troops advance on the southern Gaza Strip. The corruption trial of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu resumes. Burkina Faso and Niger quit a regional anti-Jihad force. The U.S. continues naval engagement with Houthi drones in the Red Sea. The U.N. sounds the alarm on two adrift boats with 400 Rohingya migrant passengers. A Hong Kong activist won't pay her bail to the PRC and is remaining in Canada. Doug Burgum suspends his GOP bid for the U.S. presidential nomination. And the U.S. Supreme Court is divided over a landmark opioid settlement. In our top story, the White House says that funds for Ukraine are running out unless Congress acts. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Politico and The Hill. The White House on Monday sounded the alarm to Congress, warning lawmakers that unless more military aid to Ukraine is approved soon, the pot of available funds will run dry. In a letter to GOP and Democrat leaders in both the House and Senate, Shalanda Young, director of the White House's Office of Management and Budget, urged Congress to act immediately. She says, I want to be clear, without congressional action, by the end of the year, we will run out of resources to procure more weapons and equipment for Ukraine and to provide equipment from U.S. military stocks. She also says there is no magical pot of funding available to meet this moment. We are out of money and nearly out of time. Young warned that if no action was taken before the end of the year, it would kneecap Ukraine on the battlefield. She added that U.S. shipments of aid and military equipment have already begun to get smaller in recent weeks. She says if our assistance stops, it will cause significant issues for Ukraine. The letter spelled out how the Pentagon has used 97% of the $62.3 billion it had received for Ukraine as of mid-November. The State Department, meanwhile, has exhausted all of the $4.7 billion in funding it received. U.S. President Joe Biden has also funded Ukraine's war effort via the use of a mechanism called the Presidential Drawdown Authority a lesser-known executive power that allows the president to send military aid without the approval of Congress. In making the case for Congress to approve additional aid, Young said that if Biden's request for roughly $106 billion in security assistance is approved, $61.4 billion of which will go to Ukraine, it would benefit the U.S. arms industry to the tune of $50 billion. Young name-checked several states, including Alabama, Texas, and Georgia, that would benefit from increased arms manufacturing and employment in factories there. Those were our facts, and let's start our narrative spins with the left narrative from Politico. The White House is now reaching a point where unless the Republican-led Congress acts and approves further aid to Ukraine, the administration is handcuffed on what more it can send. This would have devastating impacts on Ukraine's war effort, likely reversing its advances and paving the way for Russian military gains. Congress needs to end its inaction immediately. And the right is sounding off with their narrative coming from the Hill. In spite of over $113 billion in U.S. funding, the front lines in Ukraine have barely shifted in months of fighting. As such, Americans are right to ask what the strategy is and how the war will eventually be brought to a close. The U.S. cannot be expected to continually throw money at the war, particularly with problems at home and with the national debt spiraling to over $5 trillion. 
And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. They predict a 0.4% chance that Ukraine will receive a security guarantee from another country before 2024. The DOJ claims a longtime U.S. diplomat spied for Cuba. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Forbes, NBC News, Reuters, Al Jazeera, and USA Today. Manuel Rocha, a former U.S. diplomat and ambassador to Bolivia, who was arrested Friday, appeared in federal court Monday to face charges he served as a covert agent and collected intelligence for the Republic of Cuba. In a statement, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland said that Rocha served as an agent of the Cuban government for more than 40 years, and he sought out and obtained positions that would grant him access to non-public information about U.S. foreign policy. Rocha, 73, has been charged by the U.S. Department of Justice of acting as an illegal agent of a foreign government, violating the requirement that those who act on behalf of foreign governments register with the DOJ. He is also being charged with conspiracy to act as a foreign agent to defraud the U.S. and using a passport obtained through a false statement. After he was born in Colombia, Rocha grew up in New York City. He served as the top U.S. diplomat in Argentina before he was appointed ambassador to Bolivia, serving in that post from 1999 to 2002. Scott, thank you for the facts. A couple of spins. The first one is an establishment critical narrative coming from Daily Caller. The U.S. government administration to administration, regardless of political party, was clearly unaware that Rocha was betraying the country for more than four decades. At the very least, someone should have realized that Rocha, who negatively impacted the 2002 presidential election in Bolivia, was deeply problematic and needed further investigation. And ABC News brings us the pro-establishment narrative. This arrest was a victory for the DOJ and FBI. They caught wind of Rocha's betrayal of the U.S. in November 2022, and it took just about a year to accumulate enough evidence to bring him in. During the investigation, the FBI was able to acquire vital intelligence that could help with future investigations or dealings with Cuba in the future. Eric, I, I got to see inside Rocha's humidor. It's got to be unbelievable. What do you mean inside? He is a humidor. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, that's, how, that's, how, that's how deep this conspiracy goes. That's right. Very interesting. That is right. Yeah. Israeli forces begin to advance into the southern Gaza Strip. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Guardian, Financial Times, Jerusalem Post, and Al Jazeera. Initial reports from Israeli Army Radio on Monday indicate that Israeli forces have begun to advance into the southern regions of the Gaza Strip, with verified reports that Israeli tanks are operating near the southern city of Khan Yunus. An Israeli Defense Forces or IDF spokesman confirmed that Israel continues to expand the ground incursion across all of Gaza. UNICEF spokesman James Elder reported that Israel's bombardment of the south of the Strip was the worst the region had seen since the war began. A local source told AFP that Israeli forces had advanced south along the Salah al-Din Road, dividing it between Deir al-Balah and Khan Yunus. An Israeli spokesman said that Israel did not intend to permanently displace Palestinians from their homes. As Israel expands its offensive, U.S. officials have repeatedly warned against excessively high civilian casualties, with U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin saying over the weekend that if Israel drove Gaza's civilian population into, quote, the arms of the enemy, it would lead to a strategic defeat. 
Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant said that Israeli forces will not leave the areas in which it is operating until all of Hamas's infrastructure is destroyed and the group will see, quote, the same and worse regarding Israeli military operations in the north of the Strip. Gallant reiterated that Israel's goal is to destroy Hamas and return all of the hostages still being held in the Strip. In the West Bank, Israeli forces raided Ramallah, Janin, Silwad, Jaffna, Jalazun, Kalkilia, and Hebron arresting dozens per Palestinian media. More than 3,500 Palestinians have been arrested and 256 have been killed in the West Bank since Hamas's October 7th attack. Gaza's health ministry reports that the conflict has left almost 16,000 people, the majority of whom were women and children, in the Gaza Strip dead. The official Israeli death toll stands at 1,200 people, and there are still over 100 hostages being held in the Gaza Strip. Thanks, Eric. We have conflicting narratives, unsurprisingly, on this story. Jerusalem Post brings us the pro-Israel narrative. Though this has been a tragic war, Israel cannot allow Hamas to survive. Hamas seized upon last week's temporary pause to mark Israeli positions and prepare itself for continued attacks on Israeli forces in Gaza. Indeed, the pace at which Israeli forces maneuvered in Gaza threw Hamas's military leadership off kilter, and Israel will have to work intelligently in its campaign in the south of the Strip, to fully eliminate the terrorist group so it can never launch an attack like October 7th again. The pro-Palestine narrative comes from Middle East Eye. Israel continues to demonstrate that its war is not against Hamas, but against the Palestinian people as a whole. Nowhere in Gaza is safe, and Israel has effectively rendered the north of the Strip unlivable. Unfortunately, the temporary ceasefire only gave civilians a few days of relative rest. And now Israel has returned to killing Palestinians at an unprecedented rate. The U.S., Israel's biggest ally, must exert more pressure to end the war. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 50% chance that Israel will announce that it will release at least 142 Palestinian prisoners or detainees by 2024. The corruption trial of Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu resumes. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Times of Israel, Al Arabia, France 24, World News India, DW, and Al Jazeera. Israel's judiciary has resumed criminal proceedings against Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu after the trial concerning multiple corruption charges was paused via an emergency order following Hamas's October 7th attack on Israel. The Jerusalem District Court will resume proceedings against Netanyahu with the Prime Minister facing two cases of fraud and breach of trust, as well as one case of bribery, fraud, and breach of trust in one case, and fraud and breach of trust in another. Israel's emergency order pausing all non-urgent legal cases placed by Justice Minister Yariv Levin expired last week. Prosecutors claimed that between 2007 and 2016, Netanyahu received gifts, including cigars, champagne, and jewelry, of up to 700,000 shekels or 195,000 U.S. dollars, in exchange for financial or personal favors. Netanyahu denies the charges, and in October 2019, his lawyers claimed that an expert legal opinion defended the right to accept gifts from close friends. Prosecutors further claim that the gifts were part of an alleged plot by controlling shareholders of Israeli telecom company Bezek and the Israeli prime minister to receive regulatory leniency in return for positive news coverage. Approximately 50 individuals are still set to appear as witnesses, with the trial being postponed multiple times prior for reasons including the COVID pandemic. Netanyahu was originally indicted in 2019, 
with police recommending in 2018 for the prime minister to be formally prosecuted following a two-year investigation. The trial began in 2020, with bribery charges carrying up to 10 years imprisonment and or a fine, alongside both breach of trust and fraud sentences amounting to up to three years. Netanyahu is the first sitting Israeli prime minister to face trial. He's reportedly not expected to be called to testify in the short term, but maybe in the coming months. Scott, thank you for the facts. Our first spin is Narrative A, and it comes from Jerusalem Post. No matter what Netanyahu and his government claim to have achieved during his record-breaking time in office, the legacy of Israel's prime minister will always be in the shadow of corruption, with the United States and many other global actors beginning to question Netanyahu's and thus Israel's strength, ability, and viable posterity. Jerusalem must begin to look in a new direction with urgency. Narrative B comes from Israel Hayom. Netanyahu continues to fight back against these fabricated charges, all of which have no evidence to support them other than pre-planned accusations from government employees. This trial must go on for Netanyahu and his supporters to highlight why Israel's judicial system is in dire need of reform. Ironically, this merely portrays the disingenuous nature of the anti-Netanyahu media sphere rather than the prime minister himself. The Metaculous Prediction community has a nerd narrative that says there's a 50% chance that Benjamin Netanyahu will cease to be Prime Minister of Israel by October 2024. Burkina Faso and Niger pull out of a regional anti-jihadist force. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Brantz24, Guardian, Voice of America, Punch Newspapers, Le Monde, and Barron's. The military leaders of Burkina Faso and Niger officially announced their withdrawal from the five-nation G5 force, set up to combat jihadism in the Sahel region on Saturday. The two African nations joined Mali in leaving the alliance. Both West African countries decided to, quote, quit all instances of the G5 Sahel, including the joint force, the military leaders said. In a joint statement, they accused the G5 of, quote, failing to achieve its objectives and claim that the alliance serves, quote, foreign interests. Now, only Chad and Mauritania remain in the G5, founded in 2014, whose leaders agreed in 2017 to deploy a joint counterterrorism force backed by France and largely financed by the EU. However, only a few joint G5 missions were ever launched, while the security situation continued to deteriorate. The announcement came after the foreign ministers of Burkina Faso, Mali, and Niger recommended the creation of a confederation on Friday, with the ultimate objective of uniting their countries within a federation. The three neighbors had previously launched the Alliance of Sahel States, a pact to bolster mutual economic and defense ties. Meanwhile, Burkina Faso banned, quote, all distribution methods of the Daily Le Monde on Saturday after accusing the French newspaper of biased reporting on a deadly jihadist attack by the Group for the Support of Islam and Muslims. Le Monde claimed that 40 civilians were killed in the attack on the country's north, while Burkinabi security forces said, quote, few military personnel were killed. Since 2015, landlocked Burkina Faso is grappling with jihadist violence committed by insurgents linked to the Islamic State group and al-Qaeda, stemming from neighboring Mali and also spreading to Niger. In Burkina Faso alone, more than 2 million people were displaced and over 17,000 killed as a result of the violence. Thanks, Eric, for those startling facts. We have a pro-establishment narrative from the national news. The withdrawal of Niger and Burkina Faso from the G5 is a further setback for the French-backed fight against jihadist terrorism in the Sahel. 
The recent rise in terrorist attacks in the region, which France alone could not prevent, made Paris a scapegoat for the military juntas and served as a justification for overthrowing the governments and stirring up anti-French sentiment. Since they seized power, however, the military rulers have proved incapable of getting the terrorist threat under control, while structural, social, and economic issues prevent any development. Populist measures such as leaving the G5 are not enough. The establishment critical narrative comes from Morningstar Online. The fact that the transitional governments of Niger and Burkina Faso are following Mali in exiting the G5 is an overdue step and a further blow to France's covert neo-colonial project in the region. The organization and the alleged, quote, fight against terror were just another tool to justify France's military presence in the region. It should also not go unmentioned that it was the NATO war against Libya that triggered the security crisis in the region in the first place. The people of the Sahel reject the continued military domination and economic exploitation by France and the collective West. And only if the region is truly independent will there be a chance for peace. The Pentagon claims a U.S. warship counters Houthi drones in the Red Sea. Here are the facts as agreed upon by U.S. Central Command, The Washington Post, CNN, BBC News, The Navy Times, and CBS News. U.S. Central Command said Sunday that the USS Kearney, a Navy destroyer, reportedly successfully intercepted and shot down three drones fired by Iran-backed Houthi rebels on three commercial vessels in the Red Sea. U.S. Central Command stated there were a total of four attacks. While one missile fired from Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen exploded near the UK-owned cargo ship Unity Explorer, another hit it, resulting in minor damage. Two other ships, the Panamanian-flagged bulk carriers No. 9 and Sophie 2, also reported being struck by missiles. U.S. Central Command said the alleged Iran-enabled attacks not just jeopardized the lives of international crews, but also threatened international commerce and maritime security. It warned that the U.S. will consider all appropriate responses. Later, the Yemeni armed forces claimed responsibility for targeting ships it claimed belonged to Israel, adding that the Houthi military will continue to prevent Israeli ships from navigating the Red and Arab Seas until the Israeli aggression against our steadfast brothers in the Gaza Strip stops. The Israeli military has denied that the vessels attacked by Houthis, who are part of a self-described Iran-led axis of resistance, had had any connection to the state of Israel. Sunday's attacks come after U.S. armed forces reported ballistic missiles were fired from Yemen at USS Mason on November 26th after the destroyer responded to a distress call from an Israeli-linked commercial vessel in the Gulf of Aden. Thanks for laying out the facts, Scott. The first spin is an establishment critical narrative coming from Al Jazeera. The Middle East is on the edge, and the actions of the U.S. and its allies are not helping. While provocation of any kind must be avoided, the responses must also be tempered. The region can't afford a widening of conflict beyond Gaza. De-escalation is the best way to bring down tempers, and Iran is the key here. Nudging the country through diplomacy towards defusing the situation is the only way out, not a military tit-for-tat. And the pro-establishment narrative comes from Bloomberg. The Houthis, Iran's proxies, are a threat to the entire global economy as the region they exert their military influence on is crucial to international commerce. Sunday's attacks threatened ships with connections to 14 nations. The U.S., its allies, and the global community as a whole must robustly defend this aggression, similarly to how it successfully addressed piracy in East African waters. The nerds from Metaculus say there's an 8% chance that the U.S. and Iran will be primary actors on opposite sides of a war before 2025. 
The UN issues a call to rescue hundreds of Rohingya adrift at sea. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, UNHCR Indonesia, Myanmar Now, Voice of America, Associated Press, and Radio Free Asia. The UN Refugee Agency, or UN High Commissioner for Refugees, or UNHCR, warned on Monday that about 400 Rohingya Muslims aboard two boats reportedly out of supplies and adrift on the Andaman Sea off the coast of Thailand could die without life-saving rescue efforts. UNHCR has urged all countries in the region, especially those in the area surrounding the Andaman Sea, to deploy their full search and rescue capacities to find the two unseaworthy vessels in distress. This comes as 139 Rohingya refugees, including women and children, arrived in a single boat in Indonesia's Aceh on Saturday, despite locals threatening to push them back to sea. More than 1,000 refugees landed in the province last month, the biggest wave of Rohingya arrivals in the country since 2015. According to the UN Refugee Agency, 3,722 Rohingya have taken the risky boat trip across the Andaman Sea so far this year, surpassing the number during all of 22 to become the highest figure since 2015. 225 people who set out this year have died or gone missing. Approximately 740,000 Rohingya Muslims have fled Buddhist-majority Myanmar since a military crackdown in 2017 to allegedly overcrowded refugee camps in Bangladesh. Some have left the camps by sea to try to reach Muslim-dominated Malaysia, with many ending up in Indonesia or Thailand. In October, the Hague-based International Court of Justice, or ICJ, once again extended deadlines for written arguments in the Rohingya genocide case between Gambia and Myanmar, filed on behalf of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. Myanmar's junta will have until December 2024 to submit its counterargument. Thanks, Eric. Al Jazeera brings us the pro-establishment narrative. The Rohingya people have desperately risked their lives crossing the ocean for years, trying to find a safe place to live after suffering human rights abuses in Myanmar. This crisis has exposed structural flaws in the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or ASEAN, as its rules made it possible for Myanmar to prevent regional powers from investigating the scale of human rights abuses and taking action to halt them. ASEAN must better align with the norms of the rules-based international community. The establishment critical narrative comes from DW. It's hypocritical to criticize solely ASEAN when Western democracies have done nothing to help the Rohingya. Even though the International Court of Justice has long called for measures to protect those persecuted, while this is likely to be a consequence of fears that Myanmar would strengthen ties with Beijing if pressed, not acting to preserve the universal validity of human rights can only damage the West's reputation. The plight of the Rohingya at sea is the world's responsibility including and especially Western nations. And another nerd narrative from Metaculus, this time they predict a 50% chance that Myanmar will no longer be classified as being in a state of civil war by 2028. Hong Kong activist Agnes Chow foregoes bail and stays in Canada. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC4 Utah, Global Voices, and Al Jazeera. 27-year-old Hong Kong activist Agnes Chow posted on social media Sunday night that she would violate her bail conditions and not return to the city over fears for her safety. Chow first received a 10-month jail sentence under China's national security law that implemented the prior year, in 2020, for participating in an unauthorized assembly. Chow was a spokesperson for the now-defunct group Scholarism, during the 2012 anti-national education protests and a founding member of the Demosisto political party alongside Joshua Wong and Nathan Law. 
In 2018, she renounced her British citizenship to run for Hong Kong's Legislative Council, though her candidacy was disqualified. She was arrested the next year during the 2019 pro-democracy protests. After agreeing to visit an exhibit on China's achievements and the headquarters of tech giant Tencent, authorities in July returned her passport so she could travel to Canada to study. Now in Canada, Chow says she doesn't want to be forced to do things that I don't want to do anymore and be forced to visit mainland China again, citing physical and mental health struggles. Chow also had to apply to the national security authorities to leave the city, which included a letter of repentance in which she offered regret for her past political activism and promised to never again participate in political activities nor contact other political activists, particularly those from scholarism and demosisto. Chow, whose studies at university in Toronto were permitted on the condition that she regularly check in with the police, also claimed that several emotional illnesses put my body and mind in a very unstable state. In response, Hong Kong police condemned her post, stating that she was challenging the rule of law. Chow was one of more than 10,000 individuals arrested in connection with the 2019 protests, including Joshua Wong and Ivan Lam. While appealing her prison sentence in 2020, she was indicted on a separate charge of collusion with foreign forces to endanger national security. Those are the facts, and the first spin is an anti-China narrative coming from the Globe and Mail. Freedom fighters like Agnes Chow have risked their lives for years in pursuit of exposing the authoritarian tendencies of Beijing and its proxy politicians in Hong Kong. Beijing's reach goes far beyond its borders having previously issued overseas warrants and questioned dissidents' family members, which is why Chow still fears for her life despite living in Canada. And the pro-China narrative from Global Times. So-called activists like Chow are not fighting for the people of Hong Kong, but rather jeopardizing their national security. Young people need to understand that these protesters were traitors who put the safety of the territory at risk. While treasonous exiles work to undermine their home country from abroad, Beijing and Hong Kong are working to educate young generations on how not to fall under the same subversive spell. Once again, the Metaculous Prediction community provides a nerd narrative. It says there's a 50% chance that Hong Kong will stop being a special administrative region of China by March of the year 2046. Bergam suspends his campaign for the GOP presidential nomination. Here are the facts as agreed upon by USA Today, Politico, Associated Press, CBS, News Nation, and Scripps News. North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum on Monday announced he is suspending his campaign for the 2024 Republican nomination for U.S. president. Burgum was polling at 1% in an October morning consult poll, and that month an NBC Des Moines Register Mediacom poll showed that 3% of Republican caucus goers supported him. The second-term governor qualified for the first two GOP debates by meeting the donor requirement through an offer of giving donors $20 gift cards in exchange for $1 donations. However, he failed last month to meet the polling requirements to qualify for the third debate and appeared headed to failing to qualify for the fourth debate this Wednesday. Burgum becomes the seventh candidate to suspend his campaign, a group that includes former Vice President Mike Pence and Senator Tom Scott of South Carolina. The GOP field has been winnowed to seven candidates, with former President Donald Trump, who hasn't participated in any debates, leading the field. Thanks, Eric. We have a pro-Trump narrative on this story from The Wall Street Journal. Burgum finally made the wise decision and the rest of Trump's challengers should do the same. No one in the primary field has even bothered to criticize the former president, who seemingly solidifies his support the more legal trouble he gets into. It's best for the GOP to rally around one candidate, the runaway frontrunner Donald Trump. 
New York Times has an anti-Trump narrative, and it says that preventing another Trump White House term should be foremost in the thoughts of both Republicans and Democrats. Along those lines, the best way to do that, even suggested by several people in the Republican and conservative circles, is to narrow the field and rally around one challenger to Trump. In this pursuit, Burgum has done the party and the nation a favor. And we have a cynical narrative as well from Huffington Post. With Burgum's announcement came a collective response from all parts of the U.S. Who? Burgum's campaign served no purpose as he gained no name recognition and made no impact. All he proved is that with enough personal wealth, anyone can become a candidate for president without ever getting anywhere near the nomination, never mind the White House. And as expected, the nerds from the Metaculous Prediction community didn't want to be left out. Here is their nerd narrative. They say there's a 90% chance that Trump will be the Republican nominee for president in the 2024 election. I I do a news podcast every day. Honestly, I wasn't totally sure who Bergam was either. I'm glad the cynical narrative said what everyone was thinking. (laughs) Our final story, the Supreme Court divided over Purdue Pharma Settlement. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NPR Online News, The Guardian, The New York Times, WION News, and Reuters. The United States Supreme Court struggled over a challenge to OxyContin maker Purdue Pharma's bankruptcy settlement on Monday. If approved, the deal would shield the company's wealthy owners, the Sackler family, from personal liability for their role in the country's opioid crisis. The Supreme Court temporarily blocked the bankruptcy deal in August, with the U.S. Department of Justice arguing, that the Sackler family earned tens of billions of dollars as they swarmed the country with OxyContin, their highly addictive pain medication. The justices are reportedly divided on the issue, with liberal Justice Elena Kagan arguing that the Sackler family would be getting a better deal than typical bankruptcy cases because their deal includes protection from fraud and willful misconduct claims, which most cases do not. Conservative justices like Brett Kavanaugh have expressed criticism of the Biden administration's stance, saying that third-party, non-consensual releases have been permissible for 30 years of bankruptcy court practice, and arguing that the opioid victims and their families overwhelmingly approved the plan. Purdue Pharma pleaded guilty to three criminal charges in 2020 and agreed to pay $8 billion in criminal and civil fines, the majority of which would go to state and local governments dealing with the impact of the opioid crisis. A major portion of the money was conditional on the company reaching a deal in bankruptcy court. According to court filings, 95% of creditors in the Purdue case approved of the bankruptcy deal. The 5% that opposed consists of several U.S. states, Canadian cities and towns, indigenous tribes, as well as over 2,600 individuals. Scott, thanks for laying out the facts. Our first spin is a right narrative, and it's coming from Fox News. This plan is overwhelmingly supported by those impacted most by the case. Although this deal is not perfect, it's better than nothing. If this deal falls apart, victims of the opioid crisis could be left with no restitution. The Supreme Court should not strike down the deal and radically change the future of bankruptcy transactions. And the left narrative spin from The Guardian. It is ridiculous that the Sackler family is trying to use this bankruptcy deal to receive legal immunity from any personal liability. This is essentially special protection for billionaires, with the Sacklers being some of the most notorious white-collar criminals of current times, yet receiving no consequences for the hundreds of thousands of lives they've ruined. The family made billions of dollars off the lives of innocent people, and these people and their families deserve their day in court. The final nerd narrative of today's podcast, coming from Metaculous Prediction Community, says there's a 50% chance that at least 60 countries will, at least in some form, decriminalize possession of all Schedule One drugs for personal use by the year 2070. 
Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, December 5th, 2023. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.news and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. Thank you.